there's still a struggle with how do you get rid of your basic racism. My generation has to remind the younger generation. We grew up in segregation, and we took segregation down. So what we handed the next generation is an unsegregated world, or a desegregated world, however we want to look at it. But it doesn't mean a world without racism. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Now here's your host, Megan Hayes. Yolanda Cornelia Giovanni, who was dubbed Nikki as a baby by her sister, is a world-renowned civil rights activist, author, educator, and orator. Born in Appalachia on June 7, 1943, she is the child of Knoxville College graduates Gus and Yolanda Giovanni. She grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and she and her sister spent summers in Knoxville with grandparents Professor J.B. and Lavinia Watson. Giovanni gained early admittance to Fisk University, her grandfather's alma mater, and graduated with honors in 1968. She soon after published her first book of poetry, Black Feeling, Black Talk, which led to her being called the Princess of Black Poetry. She holds the position of University Distinguished Professor in the Department of English at Virginia Tech and has been hailed as one of the dazzling flames that lights the path to wisdom for all who desire to take the walk. She has been recognized as a national treasure and categorized as one of Oprah Winfrey's 25 living legends. Giovanni has earned seven NAACP Image Awards, a Grammy nomination, the Rosa L. Parks Woman of Courage Award, and the Langston Hughes Medal for Poetry, and has been a finalist for the National Book Award. She has authored three New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestsellers. She's a mother and a grandmother who likes to cook, travel, and dream. Dr. Nikki Giovanni, welcome to Appalachian State University, and welcome to Sound Effect. Oh, I'm glad to be back. We're so glad to have you. One of the um, things that I've heard many times is that um, you're the princess of black poetry. How did you come to be known as the princess of black poetry? I got to tell you, I I have no idea. (laughs) I don't even remember how it came up. I mean, I guess I was too young to be a queen. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know, everybody comes up with but I had nothing. It it wasn't me. Right, right. And, And it wasn't what ultimately would become my people. Right. Yeah. Do you remember at, at what point people started saying that about you? I think that my uh, greatest gift <laughs> is that I really don't remember things. I, I forget. I let things uh, go, so I don't. And mm-hmm. uh, a poem that uh, we'll share today, uh, Ego Tripping, when I first printed that, published it, was in, in a book. Uh, the New York Times put it in, uh, on, it was on the front page of their art section, and it was illustrated. I have it, uh, I had cut it out, and I've kept it forever. I think it was in 68 or 69. That I know. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I try not to, I've known a lot of famous people, and they've let their career and their life and their talent control them, and they've ruined their lives in many, many uh Respects. They, they, mm-hmm. they, they have become unhappy because they're trying to live up to something that doesn't begin to make sense. And so a lot of times, you know, people say, oh, I saw you, you know, 20 years ago. And I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember and, and I don't have any reason to. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't remember uh, ego tripping. Is I'm very close to remembering it, but I don't actually remember it. And if you don't let your past just sort of <laughs> go, you, you'll always be stuck with trying to recreate it. You know, we've lost quite a few people because they're trying to be something that somebody else who doesn't know them thinks they should be. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? It sure does, yeah, Yeah, for sure. 
Well, um, since you referenced it, this might be a good time to read Ego Tripping. Would you be willing to I'd do be, that? Uh, I'd be delighted. I would be delighted to hear it. <laughs> I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center, giving divine, perfect light. I'm bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with a la. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, I crossed it in two hours. I'm a gazelle, so swift, so swift, you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son, Hannibal, an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows ever on. My son, Noah, built Newark, and I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Men intoned my loving name. All praises, all praises. I am the one who would save. I sold diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip. Even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal. I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. <laughs> Whew, that made me tear up a little bit. <laughs> uh, I love that. Oh, thank you. It's a lot of fun. Oh, it is a lot of fun, and it's so much fun to hear you read it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a fun poem, too. You know how you write something, and the first time I read this poem, though, was in Boston. I was at, at BU, and uh, it, that's something I, I remember. I read it, and people stood, the kid, well, they were kids more. And they were standing up, yeah. And I was thinking, wow, maybe there's something else. And I read it, you know, next time. And it was like, wow, maybe there's there's more to this poem than I know. Because I was just writing, you know, it's one of those I am. And one of the things that, that, that you're involved in when you're doing these things, you don't really know what you're having until you have it. And if you're intelligent, you go on. That's what I, that mm-hmm. was an awkward way of saying, but that's what, what, what you try to do. You, right. you, you enjoy it and then you... You go on and see what, what's coming next. And so even now, if you threw all my books up in the air, it would be very easy to tell which came first and which came last because I've continued to grow. And I think growth is important. Is it fun to go back and relive some of those older poems? I don't do that much going back and re. Uh, mm-hmm. Every now and then, uh, I haven't reread uh, Eagle Shipping in, in, in a long time. I mostly continue. Mm-hmm. Um, this is history, and I think it's quite true. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's kind of wonderful to think that, you know, of course I can fly like a bird in the sky. I'm a space freak, and there's an awful lot of space in all of my all of my books. There's a lot of space and a lot of quilts. And as somebody else pointed out recently, it's an awful lot of food. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I like to cook. And um, my granddaughter came down last, came, well, I live in Virginia, came down last year, and I thought, well, I'm a grandmother, and I'm, I have responsibilities here. Because when I saw her when she was a little girl, you know, she would bounce on a bed, and you'd read books to her and things like that. And I said, Kai, you know, we have to teach you how to cook chitlins. And my other cousin was like, oh, God, I hate those things. I said, no, she's, she's got to learn. And so when Kai was down, I taught her, turn them inside out and pull them, you know. <laughs> and Kai will eat anything, so I was really proud of that. <laughs> that so uh, we sat there and we ate the 
chitlins. My, my co- I only have one other girl cousin, and Allison won't eat chitlins. Jenny won't eat chitlins. And they were like, ew, we're not going to eat them. And Kai and I looked like, we don't care. <laughs> there you go. Pass it on. Oh, yeah. You've got to. <laughs> for sure. Can you talk uh, for a moment about your Appalachian roots and influences and, and what they've meant to your work and your life? Well, I'm an Australian by birth. I, I think that the Appalachian community is being robbed right now of its great importance in American history. And I, I uh, well, I, I, I dislike um, uh, Trump, and dislike would be just such a nice word to use. I hate the way that he's teaching people to hate. If you look at the Appalachian Trail, if we started right there in Alabama, you start a little bit further over, and you come all the way up, you come up to Maine, and what that trail is going to do, the slaves who are escaping are going to come up. And so it's two things going on. The white people who are living here are being a friend to those escaping for freedom. But we also have to remember that the reason they are there is that the British were kicking them out. They, they want to get rid of the Scotch. That's why everybody's Mac something. Mm-hmm. They want to get rid of the Scots and want to get rid of the Irish. And uh, we have to remember, you know, you could go to Boston, and I, I, I collect things. But there's a sign. There used to be signs in Boston, you know, no Irish or Negroes need apply. Mm-hmm. So we know that these two communities had a lot in common. And I think that when you look at the great history of Appalachia, uh, we know that the Civil War would be would have been lost if if West Virginia had not broken up. Then Virginia would have gone over to the Ohio River. It would have changed the war. So in many many respects, West Virginia saved the nation. And of course, there's a lot of hatred of Appalachians, and there are stories to be told in Appalachia. Stories of Appalachian women, the quilts that they hung out. One of the reasons that the enslaved who were escaping knew that this was a safe house is, is that the Appalachian women, because the men weren't doing it, they were out uh, working the fields, that the Appalachian women hung quilts out. And so there, there's a lot of great history here that keeps being smothered because they're trying to make white people be ashamed of the fact that they stood up for the Constitution. And uh, I'm always sorry to hear that because these are great people. They're, their greatness should be celebrated. The poem, If I Have to Hospital, speaks a bit to your Appalachian connection. Would you mind reading it? I'd be delighted. That's the truth, because to me, and I've had enough, I've had uh, cancer, and so I've been in the hospital, and the hospitals remind me of my grandmother. If I have to hospital, please let it be in Appalachia with nasal voices and soft smiles. Are the hospitals so efficiently run because of the Hatfields and the McCoys? A lot of practice time? My arm is tattooed by a nurse who can't find my vein. I am here because I can't remember. A mild seizure, like a little bit of in love being palpitations. I don't know why. We don't know why. The medicine for love is sex. The medicine for seizure is... Somehow, it doesn't balance. Hospitals are like grandmothers. How's my baby this morning? And they give you food you don't want to eat and needles that hurt. And you smile because you know they know you want to get well without somehow having to leave them. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I was in the hospital. Well, I had a seizure. I had uh, lung cancer, and a couple of years later, I had a seizure. My mom was still here when I had the lung cancer. And she came, you know, they are the family, and my mother and my sister were here. And they came to take me out of the hospital. You know, we're going to take you home. You're going to be all right. We're going to take you home. And I was actually crying. And mom said, well, why are you crying? I said, I'm going to have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and I love hospitals. I, uh, if I have to hospital, <laughs> please let it be in Appalachia. Yeah. 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 
Um, so I'm the daughter of a teacher and an artist, and um, I think it takes incredible courage to do both. But um, I'd like to ask you about being an artist, and in particular, when you knew that you had, I guess, made it. You know, what was it? Um, when did you realize you could do this work that you loved, even if it wasn't an exact moment? Or, you know, what was that feeling? Because I think a lot of young artists would like to hear also how you made that happen. You know, I think a lot of people have a different idea of what's important. And then, again, I'm not all that humble, but the reality is still the career I have chosen, if I may use that, is one in which you're never going to be recognized. You know, most of the great classics are two and three hundred years old. The people who wrote them have no idea they wrote classics. <laughs> we can go back a, a thousand years or so. The great philosophers had no idea that we'd still be quoting them. And if you're going to be a writer, you have to let that go. And the kids today are, are thinking, oh, I want to be a writer. I want a number one bestseller. Well, most of the crap that's a number one bestseller is not worth reading. Nobody remembers it. And I teach at Virginia Tech. We start school the day after Martin Luther King holiday. And I will go into to class and I will say to them, because I teach writing class, what's the number one bestseller in America? And do you know, not one of my students will know. I don't know. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so why, why would you try to do something that you don't even know what it is? Why don't you try to say, rather, I want to write something that is meaningful to me that's the best that I can do. And Frank didn't know she was writing a right. great book. No, you don't know what, what you're doing is going to be what it is. So why would you try to do something like that? You know, this is not football or basketball. This is not a game where you get points. We're trying to make a point about the world in which we live. From a young age, you were encouraged to be an activist by your grandmother, and you've certainly seen and taken part in key moments in the history of the civil rights movement. I'm curious about what similarities and differences you see in the activism of today and the activism of the 50s and 60s. I think the kids do what they want to do, and I've been asked, uh, just because of my age, I'm sure, what do you think about, you know, the Me Too movement or the uh, Black Lives Matter movement? I think the, the kids do what we did what we wanted to do. And people like uh, uh, Roy Wilkins, who was then the head of NAACP, he didn't like what Martin Luther King was doing with marching, going around gathering crowds. He, he thought that was a bad idea. Every generation thinks that the younger generation is doing the wrong thing. It's, it's the nature of, of what it is. I think that the kids are doing a great job, and, and that's the truth. I, I have my Black Lives Matter T-shirt, and I've worked with them when they've asked me to, and I've been very proud to. But... Uh, Every generation also knows what they want to get done. And so I think the rest of us, I mean, for me, what's important is that, you know, I, I get my champagne and sit in my backyard with uh, with my fish. <laughs> you know, you we look at the world, and I'm saying we, I'm 76, we look at the world different, and we've changed the world. My generation has to remind the younger generation, because we grew up in segregation, mm -hmm. and we took segregation down. So what we handed the next generation, my son's generation, for example, is an unsegregated world or a desegregated world, however you want to look at it. But it doesn't mean a world without racism. Right. And so there's still a struggle with how do you get rid of your basic racism. And, of course, uh, I, I think that a lot of hatred is being encouraged right now, and I think that that's uh, not, a good, not a good idea. And I hate to see people just going around shooting people for no reason. I, th I think guns are... A, a, a bad 
idea, no matter what anybody says. Well, if I didn't have a gun, no, none of that. Guns are a bad idea, and we should have been moving beyond that. And I'm sorry that the United Nations doesn't work any better than it, than it does, because I think that we all should recognize this is planet Earth. And it's very, very easy to see that if we don't find a way to get along, we're going to lose it. But I think what will be interesting, because I'll be gone, is who's, the la- who's going to be the last human being going to sort of look around and realize, oh, it didn't work. This experiment didn't work. If God called and said, hi, you know, Nick, what do you think? Uh, should, should the human continue? I'd have to be honest with because he's God. And I, no, God, it didn't work. You know, you might, you might look at another planet. You know, you got nine here in, in this, this galaxy. You might want to look at another galaxy because this isn't working. And I think it's a shame because I don't, I don't think that in, in 2020 we should be afraid of each other. I don't think that we should hate each other. I just think that, that we should be a little further along. I, I really do. Uh, this, this whole idea of I'm afraid of somebody or I want this property to be mine. Earth is too small. My Speaking of my granddaughter, and uh, she's a great kid, we're, uh, we're going up to the Arctic Circle. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so excited because we have discovered, we being the scientists, have discovered um, a worm 20,000 feet under the, you know, under the ice there. And I wanted to see the worm. And so Kai says, Grandma Nick, are you still in love with the worm? And I said, I'm, I'm still in love with the worm. I said, uh, Kai, I'm going to go up to Artie Circle if you'd like to go, you know. And she oh said, yes, gosh. I would like to go. So she and our cousin Allison and my, my friend Jenny, we're all going up to the Artie Circle with the BBC, which is really, really lucky because the BBC has a um, nuclear sub. It's just a little fun nuclear sub. So we'll be able to go down to see how far down we can Go. It's a, oh it's my gosh, how I'm, incredible. I'm excited. I'm, I'm really, uh, really excited. <laughs> I really am uh, to have, have Kai because it's not something you're going to do again. Well, that's going to be amazing. Oh. Well, you have a bat named after you. Maybe they'll name the worm after you. <laughs> that oh, could be really cool. That would be really cool. I do have, you know, nobody knows that. And uh, I have a new book uh, that'll be out in the, in the uh, fall, and it's called Make Me Rain. And if you're a jazz fan, you know it as it's an old jazz tune. And I have to write, or I, I, I was saying to Rachel as my editor, I'm going to redo my my ed, my uh, my bio. And one of the things I want to put on the bio, I, I want I want the bat back on the bio. Oh, it's so cool! It's like <laughs> yeah. you're a superhero. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I, I like bats, and yeah. I, I mean, yeah, let's put the bat on. You know, Toni Morrison. Toni won the Nobel, and when she did, the Washington Post called me. And they called a bunch of people, but they called me and said, you know, would you give us a quote on? Uh, Miss Miss Morrison and I said, "Well, I'm I'm really thrilled. First of all, which I am because I love Tony Esther. But you know, a lot of people have won the Nobel for literature, but I have a bat named after me." <laughs> And this reporter just like, you can. I said, no, I got a bat named after me. So <laughs> she looked it all up because the bat had just recently, Dr. Baker at the University of Texas, he, that's what he did. And the, the bat is in Chile, Chile, I guess it is. And if you go back and, and pull up the Washington Post, one side will say, Morrison wins Nobel for literature. Giovanni has bat. I love it. <laughs> Tony, well, Tony said, you're crazy. I said, yeah, I probably am, but uh, every, everybody get what you got. I, I got you. <laughs> so... And that's one reason we love her because she was uh, she was just a special person, yeah. you know. Yeah, I had uh, the incredibly good fortune to interview Julian Bond the year that he died, and I recently saw part of an interview that he did with you. 
One thing that struck me in that interview is you talked about making mistakes and picking up and moving forward. And in that context, you were talking about writing. He said the same in the context of talking about activism. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about just the significance of making mistakes. Well, actually, there's one part if you wanted to be like, you know, I don't even know what the word would be about it. There's no such thing as a mistake. It's only a way that you learn something that this, there's a reason pencils have erasers. And it's not because you make mistakes, because that's the end of that, and you and you learn something. We all love Julian, by the way. Julian was a wonderful, wonderful man, and, and we miss we miss him a lot. Uh, I, don't rem- <laughs> I don't remember the interview, but I'm sure that he and I would both think the same thing. And Julian and, uh, of course, John Lewis, and we're worried about John. Uh, John is our good friend. Uh, we're very much worried about uh, about how he feels. And uh, Bob Moses, I don't know if you know Dr. Moses, he's a mathematical genius. He's up at MIT. Bob is still with us. And you just look at the courage of those young men, just looking at what they did to stand up to help change America, the belief that, that they had, and I, I guess maybe even I should say we because I had the belief too, but I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have the kind of courage that they had uh, in the belief we had in the Constitution and in making the Constitution live, and that was just a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And we'll be um, we'll be in in Atlanta celebrating John, and I was so glad when they called when uh, Linda Smith called me and she said, you know, we're going to celebrate John. I said, I'll be there if I have to walk out. I'll, I'll be there because you just hate it that everybody waits until you're dead. And then they say, what a wonderful person you were. And it it's, it's kind of makes a little more sense to do it while you're alive right. and you can hear. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In recent years, you've moved into a phase of life during which your matriarchs and, and many of your mentors have died, and you became the matriarch. Yeah. What has it meant to you to take on that role? <laughs> it's, I, excuse me for laughing. I was the baby in the family, right. and I looked around um, – my well, my my father had died, and you know you could do do do. But then my mother died in June, and my sister died in uh, July, and my aunt Anne died in in that October, and then uh, Agnes and I, who were the babies in the family in the Watson line, were both saying like, "Oh my goodness," you know. And then Ag died, and without realizing, my my cousin Allison called and and said, "You know, well, what are we going to do?" And I really forget. What are we going to do about? I said, well, why are you calling me? We called her Pat. I said, well, Pat, why are you calling me? She said, well, you're the elder. And it was like, let me go pour myself a glass of wine. <laughs> because it dawned on me, I all of a sudden became the oldest person. And you, you look around, and it, it's, it's, it's not difficult, like, oh, my God, this is such a burden. It's just that all of a sudden you realize, oh, I have responsibilities, that there are things that you never had to think about, that now you have to say, well, I wonder how she do this, I want to, you know, and so when Pat calls, he's like, well, I need somebody to come, you know, you can tell when people, I'll be out, I'll be on the plane, I go out to California, to, you know, you, you, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm, I'm the one that's supposed to be the grand. I am a grandmother, that's why she's going to the Arctic Circle with us. Yeah. She went to, uh, I, my, uh, all of us went down to um, Antarctica. And, uh, of course, you know, you have to take, uh, Pat, you have to come because, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you realize that, oh, I'm, I'm the elder. You're the one. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very strange. Well, I'd like to ask you to read a poem about your mother, if you would, please. Um, I married my mother. Oh, yeah. Because when, when, when my father got sick, I went back home, 
And I lived with Mommy for like 20 years, and we moved to Virginia together, and uh, all of us moved to Virginia together. I know crying is a skill. I automatically wipe my eyes, even though I know crying is a skill. Maybe I will learn, my mother did, when she thought I was asleep. I think my sister did, sleep. But sleep is as difficult to me as crying. I laugh easily, and I smile and withhold any true feelings, except once I fell in love with my eighth grade teacher and spent most of my life trying to feel safe again. Though maybe I'm safe now, after almost 30 years, which is as long as I lived with my mother. Maybe that's not a poem. Maybe that's something else. Maybe I just wanted to show my father that he needn't be cruel. Maybe I just enjoyed buying the house she had to live in, showing her she should have married me instead of him. Or maybe, since we will all soon be gone, I should be happy I found my mother and someone else who loves me. What else really matters? That's the truth. I used to say that to Mom. You know, I said, you should have married me. Gus was, was cruel, but that would be a whole discussion. And I would say, you know, you, know, you should have married me instead of, I called him Gus. I said, you should have married me instead of Gus. And she would say, well, baby, if I hadn't married Gus, I couldn't have gotten you. I said, well, you know, we need to study how human egg needs to be able to come out. Everything else can get an egg out, you know. <laughs> Chicken gets an egg. I love the blue egg. Don't you just love the blue yeah, eggs? I do. Oh. <laughs> Um, well, my final question for you, and I appreciate all the time that you've spent with me today, is um, that you've had so many successes in your life. Um, of what are you the most proud? I, I'm proud that I'm still sane. And I think that sanity is important. And I'm proud that I have enough sense to love the people who love me. And I dislike the people who dislike me. So I think that that keeps me sane. And I have not many friends, but the few I have are are good, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And I, I really do like my career, and my son is, is a good man, and uh, there are not that many good men, period. And Thomas is a good a good father, and uh, he's divorced from my granddaughter's mother, which is good because if, if it doesn't work, you should get rid of it. And uh, Kai's a, a nice kid. So, you know, you're just glad that you're alive, and uh, there's a song, you know, I'm glad that I'm living and lucky to be. And so that's uh it's not pitiful or humble, you know. I didn't ever want to be rich. I just wanted to be able to pay my bills. You know, the things that, that people want. I had My car is 11 years old, and they call you now. I, have a, I drive a Beamer, and they call you and say, you know, you really should buy a new bag. So why don't you people stop this? The car I had before that I kept for 20 years. So I'm going to keep this car until I don't drive anymore. You know, the house is paid for. I, I like my car, and my dog gets the shots. What more can I want? What more can you want? <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Nikki Giovanni, what a pleasure it has been to have you here today and an honor to have you on our campus. And I just want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and sharing your spirit and, um, and being with us on this campus. I'm glad to be back. I've been here a couple of times. You know, this is not yeah, my first time. Yeah. So thank you. I, I, I think that we in Appalachia are, are very important. And I'll be glad when we reclaim that, that great history of ours here in Appalachia. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Megan Hayes, and me, Dave Blanks. I engineered the podcast with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall with video and photo support from Garrett Ford and Chase Reynolds. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. 
Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Check out more of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Overcast, just to name a few, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Dave Blanks.